but 2020 is almost upon us, and it won't be long. I, I had promised my son Matt two years ago that I would uh, take him and his wife and a couple of his kids, or three at the time, but one got married since, so she doesn't count anymore, uh, on an elk hunt in Colorado. Uh, his wife has never hunted, and neither have the two teenage kids, one boy, one girl. But Amanda, his wife, had told him if he didn't take her hunting, she was going to shoot him. You're going to shoot something. So I promised back then that I would take them that fall. That's two years ago. And meantime, she got into the wife. Amanda got into uh, training for dental hygiene. And uh, one of the kids had gotten into, oh, he hadn't, he'd forgotten to take his hunter training course. So they couldn't go. So I says, well, we'll do it next year. And uh, now they've got their ducks all lined up and want to go. And I I was thinking of canceling it, uh, but it's a two-year promise because we are very busy right now with some preparations for what is to come. And I think on the verge of some important things happening. And uh, I, I really didn't feel like going, but I, I feel an obligation as well. And maybe it won't hurt to take a little time after the feast. Uh, for me, that is a very, uh, I guess, stressful time to speak nine days in a row, as, or, well, eight, Nelson spoke once, but to have that pressure during those times, uh, sometimes you need a break afterward, and I often do take a trip, so uh, this will do that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I just wanted to let you know I... I will be gone for a bit uh, trying to help fulfill that promise, and hopefully we'll get some elk as well. So, uh, no Bible study then Monday night. Now, leading up to the feast and during the feast, <clears throat> I went th- spent quite a bit of time going through to show uh, how God works with men, how God calls men, how he has purposes down here. He hasn't just had one work in the 6,000 years now nearly of man's experience. He's had one purpose, and that is to bring mankind to be a part of his family forever. That's been the purpose. But within that framework of his overall plan of salvation for not only a few, but for all Israel and the world, Uh, He has worked with various individuals through the years for specific jobs that needed done. Uh, I think Enoch was used primarily to tell that uh, pre-Noatian group uh, of God and to give them prophecies of the future. And he even, apparently from what Jude 14 says, had understood the resurrection and... uh, the bride of Christ, and how Christ would return with tens of thousands of his saints. So just a little insight here and there shows that Enoch, even though much, not much was said back in the Old Testament, did have certain knowledge that he preached and taught. And then God took him away, and he died much earlier than 
those people who around him who were living eight and nine hundred years, he died at three sixty five. But he had accomplished the purpose that God had, and that was to give a warning. We're told later in the Bible that God does nothing except that he warns through his servants, the prophets. So even back then, before he had said that, he was already doing it. So he had warned them. And then he started the actual work of their destruction through Noah. And Noah told them for a hundred years that what Enoch told you is now coming to pass and what I am doing here is leading up to it by building a boat that will float a few, but not all of you. So they got, in that sense, a double warning. And then when the purpose that God had made to build a boat, you know, he could have magically just caused a boat to appear, and it would have saved Noah and later his sons an awful lot of work. But God doesn't work that way. He had poor old Noah out there working day in and day out, six days a week, to get that built in their view so that it was there as a witness ahead of time of what was coming. Enoch said it, Noah did it. And then God caused the rain to come and it actually happened as they had been told. So, all through, and I cited a few examples, God prepared ahead of time for what was to come. I don't think I spent time with Joseph there, but it comes to mind here, is that way ahead of time, Joseph had been born. He had become a favorite of his father's, who had made him that coat of many colors, which his brothers despised and used every opportunity they could to put Joseph down. But Joseph went about the business of being his father's son. Well, we know the story. He was sold into slavery. Most of his brothers just wanted to kill him outright, take the coat of many colors back and give it to Dad and say, your, your son's dead. Uh, pretty cold and hard-hearted, was it not? I was just reflecting the other day as a sidelight uh, about how God is going to put the twelve apostles as head of the twelve tribes uh, in his kingdom. And it, it has occurred to me over the years off and on that, well, here were the original fathers of those tribes physically, and uh, they're going to be replaced by the twelve apostles. Well, they weren't converted, and look what they did to their brother. Uh, most of them wanted to literally kill him. And Reuben had a little bit of sense and says, well, let's not do that. And then along come, what was the Midianites or whoever it was, and uh, said, well, let's just sell him into slavery. Well, okay, we can do that. So instead of his blood on the coat, they killed an animal and spread it on it and then took that to Jacob. They were pretty hard-hearted toward their father as well. They blamed him for putting Joseph ahead of them. And then Joseph went through an awful lot in being prepared to do a work for Jacob and the brothers and the family. He went through 
seven years in prison for something he didn't do. And then God gave him a dream uh, about how he was to prepare. And God knew there was a great drought and famine coming. So he used Joseph there as the number one man under Pharaoh after he got let out of prison. He got promoted. So he had seven years to lay up food because seven years of drought and famine were coming. And so then, you know the story, how they got, Jacob came down to Mitzrayim and was fed, and the sons and so on, and then they stayed in slavery for 430 years. But there again, God used Joseph to prepare the way for 70 people to come and have food, as well as Mitzrayim and all the people around. Now, Mitzrayim did not appreciate what God had done there, and eventually took those people into abject slavery, and they were there for 430 years. Now, this is preparation made long ago, and God had it all figured out way ahead of time. He knows the end from the beginning. Christ said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I do believe we can see now that God is fair in every way. Jacob and his family did not necessarily deserve to be in slavery for 430 years. That's a long time to be in slavery. But God had a purpose. Uh, the sons were not what they ought to be. Jacob and Joseph are held up as good examples. But 430 years they were there to learn some lessons. Why? To be shown, ultimately, that there was a God, a true God, who delivered them after 430 years. They'd forgotten who God even was and were worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. So God showed them who he was. Well, God being fair, after taking Israel captive from here and sending us over to North Africa, the Middle East, and throughout Eastern and Western Europe, and finally that's where most of Israel wound up, was Western Europe. Uh, from there, some went to Australia, some went to South Africa, not too many. But he did not allow them to come back to the original promised land, which had been expanded to include this whole continent, which he said he would expand it after Joshua divided up what he had originally allocated. He said, if by chance I expand it, which he did. He didn't allow us to come back after that captivity by Babylon for 430 years. Or not for 430 years, but until there would be time for us to have back the 430 years of slavery as a free people. He gave us 430 years back from Roanoke until the summer of 2017 when I believe that 430 ended. And now he says that our captivity and going right back into slavery is imminent. He says when the 430 years of Ezekiel laying on his side was over, there would be a short while not very long, not the echoing of the mountains, but a short while 
and we'd go back into captivity. I believe the 430 has ended. I believe we are very near going back into captivity. And that God gave us back 430 years to get it right. But what did we do? We used that 430 years to go right back into paganism to get worse and worse until now we're not worth saving as a nation, as a people. So he's going to send us into famine and pestilence again. But he had this figured out way ahead of time. Even when they were there. Joseph prepared, got them there, took 430 years to get out of there. And he gave us that 430 back, and we have wasted it. And now he's about to send retribution again. This time it'll be a short captivity. A short one. Won't last more than probably five years. The tribulation being three and a half of that, but we go into captivity before that. As a nation. So God had it all figured out. And he has always sent someone ahead to prepare for what is to come. He sent John the Baptist to prepare ahead of Christ before he came to live on the earth as a human being. Caused John to be born six months ahead of him and to prepare the way for him so that when he began to, to preach, uh, John would be there to baptize some. He would be there to baptize Christ. And then Christ could begin his ministry. So, he's always prepared, and you can go into any era of history and see how he's raised up men to do that, given them what they needed to do in order to do it. Now, in this end time, I think we have already been seeing now for many years uh, that he has a job that needs yet to be done. Actually, several jobs, but all pointing toward the same thing that have to be done. And there have to be preparations made ahead of time. Now, we went through the story of Hezekiah. I took quite a little time to go through it, actually going through three accounts uh, to show two, basically as history, but especially in Isaiah uh, 36 through 40, uh, how in an end-time prophecy... He used the story of Hezekiah as a type of Herbert Armstrong. And many of the events that happened in Hezekiah's life occurred in Herbert Armstrong's life. And there was a specific time frame that God did in the end time with Herbert Armstrong. 1,900 years after Christ announced the Jubilee, uh, Herbert Armstrong got trained during that Jubilee, that seventh year release in Jubilee period. And that marked 1,900 years in the 2,000 that God gave after Christ was here and announced the Jubilees beginning in 27 A.D. So that only leaves, if God gives Satan and man two days after Christ was here, 2,000 years. Four before Christ, two after. 6,000 years for man. And we see that Herbert Armstrong was correct in his understanding of how the, the holy days 
represent a 7,000-year plan. So God gave him that knowledge, and God used him to call quite a number of people, enough people that he could choose from that enough to do the final work and to round out the 144,000. So he didn't need 3 billion. He didn't need 5 million. He needed upwards of maybe 150,000. Maybe it was two or 300,000 if you count those who were called and died and so on. Who knows? Or were truly converted because there would be wheat among the tares and so on and so forth. So, not all those who were called responded properly, not all were converted, and only God knows how many he actually called, and how many in their graves waiting the first resurrection, and how many we need here at the very end to finish out the number. But that is one of the sub-plans of his overall plan. Salvation offered to everybody, but offered to the first fruits first. So he's working toward that. And now we're getting to the end, to the wrap-up of that. And we can see in Isaiah 39 that even as Hezekiah was hauled off into Babylon and died, and Israel went into captivity, he said that Hezekiah's sons would be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So they would be made non-productive. They couldn't have children. They had no power to reproduce. And I think spiritually speaking, that is easily equated to those in Isaiah 56, whom he says would be eunuchs who keep the Sabbath. Now, I don't know, in my experience in the church of God over the decades, of any who were called as physical eunuchs. Maybe there have been a few, but I don't know of them. But I have seen over these last 30-some years a powerlessness in the church. That spiritually speaking, we might as well have just been castrated and made eunuchs. Because nothing much is being accomplished, if anything, really. Just spinning the wheels, going round in circles, and nothing is really happening. So this has been a great time of confusion. Herbert Armstrong died essentially in peace, as did Hezekiah. But Herbert Armstrong's spiritual sons have been basically powerless. And confused, frustrated, not knowing what to do, uh, concerned about our plight, because all of them that are out there trying to do something can't seem to reproduce. And all of their broadcasts, their plain truth, or their magazines, whatever they're sending out, don't seem to accomplish much, if anything. So it's been a time of great frustration. Now, Herbert Armstrong, as we now understand Haggai and Zechariah, presided over the first or former temple built here in the end time. He began building a church, and even later, I was there for the groundbreaking, in fact, when he put the golden shovel in the ground and took the first spade of dirt to build the house for God. I, was, I felt honored to be there to watch that groundbreaking. 
And maybe there was a purpose in that. But he built a magnificent building. It wasn't a huge building by worldly standards, but it was, well, a good size. But it was very, very incredibly built. Just a beautiful building. So he built both a physical and a spiritual temple. And we have seen both of those go by the wayside. The spiritual temple is a wasteland of eunuchs. The physical temple is presided over by people in the world and has no godly purpose or use at all today. Sad. Something dedicated to God is now overrun by Gentiles. Same thing's going to happen again. A new temple is to be built, both spiritually, and I have come to see, I think, quite clearly physically. Has to be done. Now, there's got to be preparation somewhere, somehow. Who's going to build that temple? Where is it going to be built? How is it going to be built? What goes into it? Does anybody know? Jerry Flurry thought it ought to be built near Tulsa, I guess it is. Oklahoma. That's what he thought. Uh, Dave Pack thought it ought to be in Michigan. Uh, United thought it ought to be in Cincinnati, Ohio. Rod Meredith finally decided he was in the wrong place. It ought to be in Charlotte, North Carolina. People have come up with their ideas of where the spiritual temple ought to be built. And then they proceeded, most of them, to building a physical plant as well. Now, to those, any of those places, among others, there are many, many, many others, do those, any of those ring true to you as the place that God would do this thing? Does He have any input on it? Does He say anything about it? Well, if He does, did anybody hear it and have they been listening? How's all this going to be done and where? And how is it going to be prepared? He sent Herbert Armstrong to do a preparation work of calling many people, which he accomplished. And then he died. And then we have seen in the Scriptures how it would all fall apart, and Sardis would die, which is what it was, not Philadelphia. And then the church would be scattered because of Laodiceanism, which has happened. We're not talking prophecy anymore. We're talking history. These things have happened. Now what? Now what? How does it come? Where does it go? Well, there's a sequel to Isaiah 39, which leaves us in the confusion and frustration that we are currently in. Now, there's got to be an answer to this. If indeed God used Herbert Armstrong and used him to build a work, and then he shows that it would be destroyed, and you can go into Haggai and Zechariah, and it shows that there would be old people around who saw one who would see the other and say that it was indeed better than that which had come before. 
So somehow that has to be done. Where can you go to find that story? I'm asking you a question. The story's in there. Where can you hear that story? How do you know? Where will it be? I'll give you a moment to think about that here. People are searching all over the place trying to find it. Let me go to Isaiah, I mean uh, Amos for a moment. Amos 8. Let's just see right here where we are. We've gone over it many times in many places, many scriptures. But here in Amos 8, uh, we went through it carefully in 2017 when there was an eclipse to come across the nation all the way across from the northwest to the southeast in the middle of the day. Here in this prophecy, God asks Amos what he sees. Well, here's a basket of summer fruit. And the end has come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. The songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, says the Eternal. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. Now, the temple, what temple? That has to equate to the temple of God. Where else do you see a temple? The Jews want to build one, but there's not a temple of God anywhere except what was the church. So he says he's not going to pass over Israel anymore, and the temple shall have howlings in that day. And we have seen a spiritual famine, pestilence, and sword which has come over the church, and there have been... Many, many people who've fallen by the wayside, a great falling away, dead spiritual bodies. Some of them, a lot of people are still living, but they're the living dead. Spiritually speaking, they've lost sight of everything. And it's kind of a silent time. Nobody has much to say. Hear this, O you that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail. It's happened spiritually. He even talks about it down in verse 11, about a spiritual famine. We'll get there here in a minute. So, the weak, the small, the little, the average person in the church has failed. And we're about to see the same thing physically in the nation. Going on down a little bit, it says, Shall not the... God says he'll not forget their works, the end of verse 7. Mistreatment of people. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwells therein, and it shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Mitzrayim. Now, he said he wouldn't send another flood like that, but he speaks of floods of armies. And just as Pharaoh and his army was drowned in that flood, so shall this coming Warfare and floods of armies coming in destroy this nation. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the eternal God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. 
I think that was fulfilled there in the late summer of 2017. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. wonder how the Christmas season is going to go this year and next. Uh, the feasts of God have been turned into mourning and songs of lamentation in a way, haven't they? Not many show up. They're still not there for the right reason. They're there for vacation. They want to go to the beaches of Florida. They want to go to wherever. Uh, Malaysia. I heard of someone went this year from some group or whatever. They go all over the place. They don't go where God said they should go, but they go somewhere. But it doesn't amount to much. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only son, and the end thereof is a bitter day. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Eternal. So I think we have a dual message here. That as of 2017, God marked his last warning and said, from here on out, it's over. This is inevitable. I'm not going to relent. I'm not going to repent. It's going to come. Now, we've seen it come on the church on a spiritual level. Now we're seeing it happening more and more day by day now in the nation. I mean, just over the last few weeks, the acrimony and the bitterness and the hate in the political machine that is the American government has become almost unfathomable to anyone who knew what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. It has changed that much. Now they've got outright threats of death against various leaders, including the president. And nothing's being done about it. Used to, if you made such a threat as that, you had people on your doorstep. Not anymore. And he says, there'll be violence in the land, ruler against ruler, just before the northern army comes. What do we got? It's here. The violence is being threatened, and then it's going to happen. We'll have civil war. So this is speaking of both spiritually and physically. While we see the nation about to go, and that's the way Ezekiel put it, at the end of the 430, he said, it is come, it is come, it is near, it is come about 11 or 12 times. It's at the door kind of thing. Didn't say it would happen on the 430th day, but it would happen shortly thereafter. And we've examined those things about Cyrus and Darius and how the 70 years of captivity ended in Babylon, but it was a couple of years later before they were given permission and went to go build the temple and so on. Some of it started in the first year, as uh, Ezra says, but uh, it was addressed by Haggai in the second year. And he tells us in several places that in the midst of the years are... During the third year, he will revive. So, I think the church is near revival. Time of, of uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for there in Acts? Time of restitution. But the nation is about to go into trouble. 
Well, now as the nation goes into trouble and begins to be destroyed, there are people who are in the church today who are going to begin to wake up. They're going to see that these prophecies are coming to pass. And instead of being comfortable in United or Philadelphia or wherever they are, they're going to begin finally to look for some answers. And Hosea says they'll turn to him early. But they'll go looking. And it'll be a famine of hearing the words of the Eternal. Wherever they've been going, those institutions, those churches, those groups are going to begin to disappear. Because money will be no good. And they can't make broadcasts. They can't make booklets. They can't conduct churches. And besides that, the preachers will be dumb dogs that can't bark and don't know what's going on. So they won't be able to give them any answers. It'll be a famine of the Word. What Word? What's the Word of the Lord? What's going on? What's happening to us? They will say. What is happening? And what will they do? They will wander from sea to sea, coast to coast, and from the north to the east. So it'll be a nationwide thing, sea to sea. But it says from the north, even to the east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the eternal and shall not find it. <coughs> from the north sea to sea would be the northern tier of the country all the way across. But it doesn't say anything about the south, and particularly the west. Sea to sea, but from a northern perspective. They won't find it. Why? Well, I think we're going to see it's going to be in the southwest. They don't know that. You know what? None of them know that. They just don't know it. What, what, what group are you going to go to and hear that? Where are you going to hear it? Check it out. Sea to sea. From the north to the east. Includes the east. I suppose that means all of the east. The north, all the east, but it doesn't mention the west. Southwest. Northwest it does, but not southwest. Can't find it. Won't be available. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst, be spiritually drying up, dying. They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Your God, O Dan, lives, and the manner of Beersheba lives, even they shall fall and never rise up again. False gods, not knowing the true God, having forgotten not knowing where to go, what to do. And they'll, they'll begin to look, but they can't find. Not there. Go through all the groups, not there. Pretty sad state of affairs. Now, where can you find the answer? They're looking for an answer from God and they can't find it. 
The preachers are all dumb dogs and can't bark. They have no clue. Vomit on all tables. Is God going to leave no answer? Or does He always give an answer? He says He always gives an answer. He always sends somebody to make sure things are prepared for His purposes. That's always been the case throughout history. The end is no different. So, let's go then to Isaiah and pick up a story. Isaiah 39 ends up with Hezekiah dying and his sons all becoming powerless to do anything. No work really being accomplished. He introduces something different, completely different, in Isaiah 40. Now, this is some of the information that was used in Luke 1 and Luke 2 to talk about John the Baptist uh, and how he would come and prepare a place for Christ. He was a voice crying in the wilderness before Christ uh, began his ministry and baptized Christ and so on. So Isaiah 40 is brought forward as a preparation for Christ's first coming as a human being. And now we are 2,000 years later as his preparation to come again in glory. So if a, a way had to be prepared by John the Baptist back then, then a way also has to be prepared in the end because his second coming is going to be greater than his first coming. Right? He came as a crying baby the first time. This time he's coming back in glory. So preparations have to be made for that. And the people has to be prepared. Let's look at the story. Now, we just described the confusion, the famine of the Word, the frustration that we've all felt for the last 30-some-odd years. Here's a different kind of a message. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Now, I'm going to show you in the context that this isn't just talking about John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for Christ's ministry. These prophecies through here have an end-time context. Now, Luke did not quote all of this and give the end-time context because that's not what John the Baptist was about. John the Baptist was about Christ coming as a human. So all of the rest of this was not recounted in the New Testament by Luke or by the other gospel writers regarding the life of Christ and the preparation that was made before he got here. But this is. It's important. Now we come upon a time when God's people, those whom he called in the first end-time temple, 
have been milling about in confusion and frustration, not knowing what to do, not seeing the answers. So here it says that after Herbert Armstrong dies and his sons are powerless, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Now is a time, if any, since I've been associated with the church of God, that his people need comfort. They need encouragement. They need hope. They need some answers. How do you comfort someone? You give them answers. You tell them how it will get better. That it won't always be the way it is. And when somebody's sick, you come and you comfort them and tell them they're going to get well. And if you'll take this awful tasting stuff, you'll feel better. Or whatever they use to give them hope and encouragement that they'll feel good again someday. So whether it's mental or whether it's physical or whatever... And in this case, spiritually, God's people have been in great confusion and need comfort. Well, how are you going to comfort them? What are you going to tell them? Do any of the churches give them the answer? I suppose some are still telling them they're going to go to Petra and live in Jordan for three and a half years. But I think we've seen that that can't be. How do you comfort them? Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. So, comforting then means speaking comfortably to tell her that the war, the fighting, the struggling, the confusion, the frustration is about to end, that it's over, and that she will receive of his hand double for all her sins. Now, he tells us later on in the prophecies that he's going to double up on blessings that the blessings will be greater than the sins ever were. So the very beginning of a message here at the end of Isaiah 39 is that help is on the way. Things are going to get better. God will bless you doubly for all your sin, for all that you have done wrong, and He's going to show repentance through here. And then how God will bless that repentance by turning His face back upon us. So comfort is coming. Now where is it coming from? The voice of Him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the eternal, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now let's analyze this a little bit. Look back on the life of John the Baptist, who was a fulfillment of this. And he was physically out in the deserts 
until the time of his revealing to Israel. It says it right there. Let's go back there for a moment and see what is said. I hadn't necessarily thought of tying that in, but we have to see how the story fit then as compared to how it will fit here at the end. Let's see, I want to pick this up uh, where... Somewhere in Luke, uh, yeah, in Luke 1, not 2. Uh, Elizabeth, or Zacharias was told, up here, verse 17, uh, that John the Baptist would go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the heart, fathers of the children of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the eternal. And on down here somewhere, it says he would dwell in the desert uh, until the time of his revealing to do the job. Uh, my eye doesn't fall on it. But anyway, he would bring a message that there was an answer coming. Uh, verse 75 of chapter 2. Uh, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, that he would bring knowledge of this. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the eternal to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Well, he went ahead of Christ. Uh, he taught remission of sin. He told people how they ought to turn back to father, their fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and maybe even physical fathers to children. But this is more about God and our spiritual fathers. He tells us in Isaiah to turn to the pit from which you were digged, Abraham and Sarah. I think that's 51 or 52, somewhere. Well, somewhere right in there. Maybe it's 55. Sounds more right. Uh, but he'll give knowledge of salvation and remission of sin and baptism through the tender mercy of God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. Now to do what? To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now the whole church sits in darkness today and in the shadow of death. The tribulation, well, at least the captivity of the nation, is almost upon us. That will happen before the tribulation. To give them light. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. So he would bring a message that there are some answers the God will provide answers and to let them know what they needed to do in order to receive those answers. They needed to repent. They needed to be baptized. They needed to be taught, prepared so that when Christ came, they would be ready to listen. So we go back here and we see that verse 3 was part of what John the Baptist's mission was. That was his purpose. That was what he was called to do. 
to cry in the wilderness. Well, he lived in the deserts in the wilderness, and that's where he cried from. And that's where he stayed until God began to reveal him to the people of Israel. Now, he later came to have a relationship even with Herod the king and visited with him apparently quite often, and there was some affection between them so that Herod was not happy when he had to cut John the Baptist's heads off because he was duped into so doing. And John lost his head as did most of the prophets of God throughout history, of one form or another, some kind of death. And it'll happen again here at the end. (coughs) So he was out in the wilderness. Now, it was both a physical and a spiritual wilderness, right? He lived in the desert. We see some other place that he lived in leather, rough garments, and ate honey and so on, things that you go out and find in the desert. Uh, was the way he lived. So both physical and spiritual are involved here. He certainly was in a spiritual wilderness, with the scribes and the Pharisees being the only religion that even smacked of God in any way, being the only thing around. And they were so far from God, they didn't have a clue who God really was. And Christ called them a lot of horrible names. So it was both a physical and a spiritual wilderness. But the point was to prepare for Christ, who is the real answer to everything. (laughs) You know, there's not going to be a millennium until Christ comes. The beast and the false prophet aren't going to bring one. They're going to bring slavery and call it peace. It's not going to happen until Christ is here. Except for a certain few, whom he says he will bring out to do his work, prepare the way for him, and that he will bless them, even physically, as they build his temple and build Jerusalem and prepare for the end-time events. Now, we're in the end time, and we're getting very, very well on our way through it. So these things are imminent. So... Prepare for the way of the eternal. There's got to be a people prepared. There's got to be things done so that the end-time prophecies about him can come to pass. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, does that mean that God's going to raise up some freeway builders so they can make a straight highway through the desert? No, there have already been freeway builders. They've got freeways through the desert. I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. Uh, John the Baptist didn't build any freeways. He was just out there doing his best to obey God, living in the desert, and obviously had been taught somehow, some way, about the plan of salvation and about Christ coming And he recognized him when he did come. Of course, they were first cousins, only six months apart. Their mothers knew each other. Their mothers had been told, and Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, they'd been told what their children would do. And I am sure 
that they shared those stories back and forth throughout the growth of those two sons that were born six months apart. The story that Zechariah and Elizabeth heard is there. The story that was told to Mary is there. And they knew that one would come and prepare the way for the other. You think they didn't talk about that? If sisters or cousins get together today and talk about their babies and when they weaned them and when they taught them to talk, and I taught mine a month before yours, you know, they talk about their babies. You think those two didn't? Being given what they had been given? Mary wasn't even married, had never known a man physically, and got pregnant. That doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Some girls will try to tell you that's the way it happened, but it ain't the way it happened. But she knew. This was something special. And they talked about it back and forth, back and forth. They went over all the things that Zechariah was told. They went over the things they were told. They knew something special was happening. So, John the Baptist was prepared, and his dad coached him. Don't you think? Didn't we just read there about how, son, you're going to do this and you're going to do that? And people will be blessed because of the things that you tell them. Zechariah had been told that before John the Baptist was even born. So he told him about it all his life. And his mother told him about it all his life. And he listened to Aunt Mary tell about it all his life. And you know what else? He and his first cousin Jesus got together and talked about it all their lives. They couldn't have not. They grew up together. And they'd been told the same stories. And the whole family had gotten together and repeated in front of both of them. Now, I can't, I can't read that to you. But it happened. It had to have happened. It couldn't not have happened. So he knew what his job was. And at some point, he just went out and lived in the desert. And stayed there until the time had come. And he knew that he was going to go out and baptize people. His father had told him that all his life. And that he would be in the deserts until it was time. So he moved out in the desert and he stayed there until it was time. Probably as a very young man. Stayed with his parents until it was time to go to the desert. So, he knew that he was preparing for what his cousin would do. So, when Christ showed up to be baptized, <laughs> that was a no-brainer. They already knew the story. I don't know whether he knew that he was going to baptize Christ until that point, but he knew he was going to be out teaching salvation and repentance and baptizing people. 
but perhaps he had a clue. So, he was to be in the wilderness and to cry out, prepare the way of Jesus. That was the first fulfillment. He who would be the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, what did he preach? The Christ is coming. The Christ is alive. The Christ will be here. And he will teach. And he will preach. So, he paved the way, if you will. Or prepared the way. He made it straight. He told people how it was going to be. Now, they might have been confused because the Sadducees were teaching them one thing about the resurrection. They said there wasn't one. Pharisees were teaching them something else. The Essenes were teaching them something else. It was a time of confusion in Israel because they had different bodies of leaders who claimed to be the leaders, just like we have today. And they weren't the leaders at all. Were they? Christ said they weren't. He said John the Baptist was, and he was. He didn't say they were, not all those leaders. You know what? I just told you, none of the leaders in the church today are either. They don't have a clue what's coming next. You don't know one of them has a clue. You haven't heard it. It isn't there. It wasn't there in John the Baptist's day either. But he cried out, let's get ready for the Christ to come and preach. And when the Christ came to preach, people had been told ahead of time what was going to come next. Okay, that's about the end of the story of John the Baptist. Right there. Doesn't go on. He did down through verse 3 as a partial fulfillment of the whole prophecy here. Let's go on. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Now, he did, I'm sure, preach that to some degree. But was, if you equate mountains and hills to governments, were all of them taken down and made low? Was all that was crooked made straight? It wasn't done even in Christ's day. He didn't take down all the governments. He didn't straighten out all the crookedness. He told a few of them they were crooked, But he didn't straighten them all out, did he? So this has to be a prophecy that supersedes and goes beyond anything that John the Baptist could have taught. Because Christ didn't come to save the world. He didn't come to save even Judah. He came to call a few and to start a work that would go on for a bit and leave a message and a story for those upon whom the ends of the world have come, who would do the final work and prepare the way for Him to come in glory. And 
Then he is going to take down every government of man, the hills, the valleys, the mountains, will come down. He will straighten out all the crooked and rule with a rod of iron. He'll make the rough places straight and able to be walked upon without danger. Everything will be peaceful. Well, he didn't do that the first time he came. So this message is not a message for the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes of Christ's day. It wasn't a message for Herod. Did John the Baptist or Christ remove Herod? No, Herod removed John the Baptist's head. It was just the opposite. And they killed Christ. Well, killed them both, right? So he didn't do verse 4 then. He's going to do it soon. So you see from the end of verse 3, beginning with verse 4, is a totally different message about a totally different time. It changes right there. Now, verses 1 through 3 do apply at the end, but they applied in John the Baptist's day, and in the end, down to verse 3, he's, his stops, and then it continues for the end time. So, verse 3 is the end of basically what John the Baptist did in the beginning well, not the beginning, but a continuation then of what has to be done now. Christ is coming back. He still needs a place prepared, or a way prepared. He still needs a people prepared. He needs, and he's coming to the desert. I'm going to show you that in a little bit, because it's all here in the context. It's going to be in the desert. It's not going to be in Cincinnati, not going to be in Charlotte, not going to be in New York. Not going to be in Tel Aviv or an old Jerusalem in the Middle East. It's going to be out in the desert and wilderness. Uses both words here in the next chapter. So this is talking about the end time when Christ will set up, at the end of which Christ will set up the kingdom. The glory of the eternal shall be revealed. Did he come in glory? No, he came as a baby. He came as a man. He's coming back in glory. Read Revelation 1. His face shining like the sun in its full glory. So, here is a message that is to be preached. The Christ is coming back in glory. And all flesh shall see it together. Doesn't it say there in the New Testament, Matthew? Every eye shall see him. All flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. God has said it. It's going to happen. Christ is coming back in glory. And everybody's going to see it. That's an end time message. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? There's a message to be given. Now, it started out saying, comfort my people, twice. Double emphasis. 
Third time of emphasis, speak you comfortably to Jerusalem. That's the church. Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 show that that is the church. <coughs> We've been to that scripture a hundred times at once. Speaking about the church. What do I cry? What do I preach? What do I say? Well, the first part of the message, then, is all flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. Because the Spirit of the Eternal blows upon it, surely the people is grass. Now, we read that in Peter just last week. Peter quoted this. So, there are elements from the prophets that the apostles preached. But you know what those apostles thought? They thought they were at the end and all these things were about to happen. So, they quoted them. But they weren't at the end and it didn't happen and their end came. But they wrote it for us, now that we are here at the end. So when Peter quoted this, he thought it was coming in his lifetime. But he wasn't the final one to preach it. It's got to be cried again at the end. For all those people who will see him come in his glory. So the first part of the message, he says, I'm going to comfort my people, but let's understand that all flesh is as grass, and that men are equated to grass and flowers here, and the conditions are going to come that we're going to cause mankind to wither and die. So the first part of the message is that man's had it. All that is about to come before Christ is revealed in His glory is going to basically destroy mankind from off the face of the earth. And he says, if he didn't come in time, all flesh would indeed be destroyed from the face of the earth. So he has to come in order to keep all grass, all flowers, that is all men, from dying. End time message. Can't be any other time. That didn't happen during Christ's first ministry. Didn't happen with the apostles. It's still yet to come. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's continue just a little more now. O Zion, or it should read really in the Hebrew, O you that tell good tidings to Zion, get you up into the high mountain, O you that tell good tidings to Jerusalem, Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now he starts out by saying at the end, after Hezekiah, after Herbert Armstrong died, Bring a message of comfort to my people. Tell them that they are in the end time, that Christ is about to return but that all flesh is going to begin to wither and die, and unless he does return, all will die. But, within that, 
with that dire message that all flesh is about to die, wither up and go away. There is a message of good tidings to Zion and to Jerusalem. So, a voice in the wilderness has to tell that God's people will have comfort and they'll get double blessings for their sins, more blessings than cursings that they were under. We were under the curse of sin, as Laodiceans. That will be forgiven. The sin will be forgiven. And we'll receive twice as many blessings as we've had cursings. As much confusion and frustration as we've had, we will have double that in joy and love and hope and peace. So it's a two-point message so far here. Comfort the people of God, but let them and everybody know the mankind's jig is up. It's over. All going to die unless he returns in time to stop it. But bring a message of good tidings to Jerusalem and Zion, the church. Let me review that one more time. Hebrews 12. Who is that to? Is it to the Jews over in the Middle East or the Jews in New York or Los Angeles or Miami? He says, don't be like Esau who forsook his birthright. Now, God has given you and me a birthright. We are to be born as the sons of God. We are to be the bride of Christ. Don't profane it. I've been trying to tell us we have a calling. We have a calling higher than and beyond the calling we had in Worldwide. We've been called to a new work. A work that will commence soon. Herbert Armstrong's work's finished. He's dead. His sons are eunuchs in Babylon, unable to reproduce or to have any answers. There's an answer coming. So don't profane the new calling. Not just the old one, but the new one. We've been rebaptized, haven't we? In the name of Emmanuel. God with us. Not just God is salvation. Christ appeared, Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are come, not to Mount Sinai, he says. You are come to Mount Zion. Oh, Zion. Remember that word. You are come to Mount Zion. What's the message to back here? You bring good tidings to Zion. Talking about the same thing. And to the city of the living God. Doesn't he say that the bride is the city of the living God? The heavenly Jerusalem. Not just the physical one, but the heavenly one. Revelation 21. Coming down with 144,000 who are the bride. And to an innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Who are to be the firstborn sons? Those of us who have been called out 
and who are chosen. I've got somebody telling me that I need to join the Chotes of the Fosbon. He doesn't know what it is. You're in it. I'm in it. The Church of the Firstborn. Which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, or Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Don't refuse him that speaks. Christ is speaking to us through his word. And he's going to send people to do it. One, and then later he's going to have two. You'll see that this message in Isaiah 40 is brought by one. We'll see that shortly. But not today, because we're out of time. So this is the beginning here of the story that gives the answer to all the confused church that is out there. We're going to go through and you're going to see God's answer to the problem. Now you and I have been over it already many, many times in different places in the Scripture. So this isn't something new to you. But I want us to look at it from the standpoint of a work ended and a new work has to begin. And if you have been called out to have knowledge of a place in the new work, then you have received a new calling. See that you do not treat that calling or that birthright the way Esau did. For we are come to heavenly Zion and to heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn, and it is going to be the latter temple of the church of the firstborn that God is going to use to do the end time work. You and I have a chance to be part of that. Let's not profane it, and let's not deny it, and let's not walk away from it, because we will be held accountable by the living God.